we also had uh, what was called the Trabant switch, so we could uh, dim the the headlights to make them look from far away as if it was a, a trabi. And then we also had one was a motorcycle light that we could um, uh, switch off half the lights of the vehicle, so from far away, someone would think it's it's just a motorcycle. Uh, so those are the kind of things that, uh, and they came in handy. Uh, they came in very handy tactically. Uh, but yeah, it was dubbed the, the 007 uh, switches. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Tom Favia served with the USMLM, the US Military Liaison Mission, which the Soviet Union permitted to operate in East Germany at the end of World War II for the purposes of monitoring and furthering better relationships between the Soviet and Western occupation forces. The British and French also had missions in East Germany and the Soviets had theirs in West Germany. Tom tells the amazing story of his recruitment from being an art student to being deployed behind enemy lines in East Germany. He also describes his earlier career on the inner German border and then we move to his US MLM career. We hear about his driver training, planning procedures and the process for exiting West Berlin as well as details of the vehicles including the James Bond switches. If you've listened this far, I know that you are enjoying the podcast, so I'm asking for a small monthly donation to support my work and allow me to continue producing the podcast. As a monthly supporter, you will get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate if a financial contribution is not your cup of tea then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us as well as sharing us on social media it really helps us get new guests on the show so back to today's episode i'm delighted to welcome tom favia to our cold war conversation I was uh, attending art school uh, in New York City, uh, 1980, uh, and I seen Apocalypse Now uh, with a friend of mine. And uh, as you know, as young young guys just finishing up high school, we were like, "Hey, that looks look, looks awesome." So actually, it was Apocalypse Now that worked as a a recruiting film, although it was ac- actually obviously an anti-war film. But it had the opposite effect, and uh, me and my my buddy from New York City, we uh, decided to uh, to join. And in fact, we wanted to uh, first cavalry division, first squadron, ninth U.S. cavalry. So that uh, if you remember the movie in Apocalypse Now, that scene with the uh, with the helicopters um, flying to the uh, <laughs> flight of the Valkyrie. So that's that's what, uh, and we actually ended up in that unit. Uh, so, and I I wasn't sure at the beginning it was you know going to be just a four year contract. Uh, just a kind of, uh, you know, a bit of adventure, but I ended up liking it and then just stayed a little bit longer until I retired. So 
But that's how I ended up in the U.S. Army back in 1981. Wow. Art school to uh, U.S. Army is, yeah, an an unusual unusual path. I mean, did you fancy yourself as a – I'm trying to think of a – an arty person who who joined the army. I don't know. What did you think? Did you think that you were? It was going to be. It was going to inspire you to produce some. No, actually, actually, I did. Obviously, I, I did do some some artwork while I was in the army in the beginning uh, because you know when you're a young private and uh, company commander or troop commander finds out you can draw, well, you know they want to they want to utilize you for different projects. But but actually, no, that's. Um, I think it's it was typical of being young and maybe even, you know, I went to school, art school in Italy as well before uh, New York City for a couple of years. So, you know, but all artists are eccentric. So maybe that's that's why, you know, I did something completely different uh, than what I've been uh, working on for years and years, uh, but ended up liking it. And that's why I just uh, stayed on. That's amazing. And Apocalypse Now <laughs> as a recruitment film is, um, yeah, really something special there. I've I've never heard that before. I mean, presumably when, when, once you joined, you'd mentioned this to your um, your comrades. What did they make of yes, that? In fact, uh, an interesting uh, story. Uh, we got to uh, Fort in Texas where 1st Cavalry Division was uh, stationed at the time and even 1st uh, Squadron 9th U.S. Cavalry as part of the 1st Cavalry Division. And um, so we didn't know which unit we were going to go to. We had an assignment to 1st Cavalry Division, but obviously we didn't know, you know what, what assignment we were going to get once there. And we got chosen as two young privates uh, to have breakfast with a division commander, uh, two-star general. So there were a couple of other people there at the breakfast table. And he came in with his entourage, his adjutant, who was lieutenant colonel. And there was two women around the table asking people, okay, where are you from? And, and, and the t- typical things. And he got to me, and here I am, this, this private. Uh, and I said, uh, yes, sir, you know, me and my friend, we're from New York. Uh, and we joined together, told him the story. And then he said, well, what unit are you going to? And I said, well, this is my opportunity now. And I said, well, uh, I think we got orders for first of the eighth, but we were really hoping for first of the ninth. And then he kind of smiled and he looked at me and says, well, why? I said, well, you know, I know it's history in Vietnam. It's glorious uh, uh, heritage and and, uh, combat effectiveness during the Vietnam War. He smiled. And I didn't know that, but he had been the commander of the first first squadron ninth cavalry in, in Vietnam, one of them. So he looked at his adjutant and he says, well, whatever his name was, I can't remember, Lieutenant Colonel So-and-so. I think we can take care of these two young soldiers and get them to one nine calf. And a couple hours later, we had orders to uh, to one nine calf. So that's <laughs> wow. That is a great. That's a great story. That amazing, amazing. And what role were you, um, you know, initially doing in that unit? Yeah. Well, I joined as a uh, reconnaissance specialist, so that was my uh, entire military career. Uh, in different reconnaissance units from light to uh, LERPs, uh, and of course, uh, you know, also USMLM. Uh, you couldn't get more recon than that. No. <laughs> we're, we will come on to that in, in a moment. So so what sort of training do you need for recon to, to, to have that specialism initially? Yeah. The, the U.S. Army, because reconnaissance has a tradition of uh, – Coming out. That's why it's not part of the infantry. It's part of the cavalry because it uh, the history of the of the U.S. Uh, reconnaissance. The first uh, recon troops for the U.S. Uh, military were Native uh, Indian scouts. 
So that's why through the through the uh, tradition, we remained as part of the cavalry. And Fort Knox was our home uh, for training. Uh, initially, that was our uh, basic training and advanced training. And then in, in the typical reconnaissance skills uh, that that everyone you know is familiar with uh, on the ground, being in front of um, friendly units, uh, collecting information, uh, eyes and ears of the commander. So that's that's uh, the kind of training. And obviously, you went through different different uh, uh, echelons of training, starting you know as a young soldier, and then working up through an NCO. Uh, but it was always dedicated to that same principle of eyes and ears on the ground uh, for the for the commander. Obviously, your your specialism helped you get into the U.S. military liaison mission. But how how were you picked out? Were you good at languages, or, or what was the reason you got selected? It was it was again, I think, uh, a bit of luck, and and also of being uh, at the uh, right place at the right time. Um, I was uh, in Germany in uh, the mid '80s with the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment uh, on the inter-German border. And I'd been selected by the squadron commander. In fact, I was, I was thinking of leaving the Army, of getting out with 10 years. And he had talked me into staying, and he wanted me to take over the uh, position of the Border Recon NCO. So in charge of the actual, for our sector, was 152 kilometers of the, uh, of the inter-German border, uh, where we ran patrols uh, 365 days a year, uh, 24-7, uh, so he wanted me to take over that as being responsible for that uh, mission. So I did. I said, oh, that sounds really good. Uh, and so I, I, I did that. And at the time, the regimental commander was um, Colonel Abrams. And he came down to um, the squadron uh, and talked to me and, and met me. And he was pretty impressed in my capabilities. And a couple of months later, I got a, a call to go up to the um, uh, regimental headquarters because he said, uh, Colonel Abrams said, look, there's this guy coming, this special forces major from the USMLM, and he's going to give us the, the USMLM briefing. So at the time, you know, they would go around and brief the units. Uh, so uh, intelligence S2 type of briefing to show the, uh, the units along the border what, what they were facing and what the USMLM was doing across, uh, across the other side. Uh, and he said they're looking for a recon specialist because the one that they have now is leaving. Uh, and I couldn't think of anybody else uh, than recommending you. So he says, well, why don't you come up and take a look, you know, sit, sit through the briefing and and then see what, uh, you know, talk to uh, this major. So that's what I did. I went up there and I sat in, uh, in the back of the room where all these uh, troop commanders were and, and uh, the colonel and Tugman Colonels and saw the briefing. Now, obviously, most people had heard about the mission, you know, you'd, you'd read some things, and especially with the Nicholson's incident in 85, it was big in the news for a while. So, you know, and we also knew in West Germany because the Soviets were in West Germany doing the same thing, the Soviet military liaison mission, Soxmas in the British sector and so on. So we, we kind of knew, but you didn't really have a, you know, a, a clear picture. So I'm sitting in the back of the room and then he's given this briefing with all these slides and videos and I'm going to myself, oh, my God, that is incredible. And so obviously it blew my mind because that's the first time that I was able to see what they were actually doing on the ground and that it was real reconnaissance um, behind enemy lines. So after the, uh, the, the briefing, uh, the colonel introduced me to the major, Major De Leon, uh, SF major, and he, uh, he said, well, Tom says, uh, if Colonel uh, – Abrams recommends you, 
but I've got no problem. Says, when can you start? So I said, as soon as, as soon as possible. And I think it was like a couple of weeks later, I had orders. Uh, and about a month later, I was in, uh, in West Berlin. Wow. Wow. When yeah, I just want to go back to you, you talking about the inner German border, um, you know, that, that, obviously gave you some familiarity with the work of the the USMLM um but were were there any incidents that that you particularly remember about that that time on the border well on the border it was always uh pretty much exciting because you had on the other side obviously the the east german border troops that was basically who we would see on a daily basis you wouldn't see really soviet troops that much uh most most of the time you'd see soviet troops were uh heinz uh, so MI-24s or MI-17s, uh, uh, flying uh, MI-6s, things like that, flying along the border, MI-8s. But you didn't really have uh, you know, Soviet troops that you would see on the ground. So you were really opposed to the, the East German border troops. Those are the ones that you would see on a daily basis. But it was basically just to, to show our presence along the border so they know that we're there. We, we conducted patrols. And I would obviously... Uh, be out on the ground uh, collecting information that was, was given to us from higher. So a specific uh, um, in, intelligence gathering missions that we would also conduct along the German border. But you had some, some incidents where, uh, you know, people, East Germans who uh, defected crossed the border. Uh, it wasn't that often because obviously it was very well protected. It was a you know five kilometer zone leading up to the inner German border that was highly uh, patrolled, protected with all their Stasi informants uh, leading up to them, the obstacles along the border. But uh, but there was always activity along the border. So we, we you know it was never a dull moment uh, because the East German border troops were. Con- you know, continuously uh, patrolling along the uh, inner German border. And if if you were observing an escape from East Germany, what what were your orders to just observe? I presume, as long as they were on the uh, eastern side uh, of the border, uh, so geopolitical, um, we could not interfere. Uh, but once they they crossed that imaginary line. Uh, into West Germany, then we could obviously, uh, you know, protect them uh, as as required. Uh, you know, we would show uh, force uh, in in those cases. I remember there were some incidents uh, along the border, especially where the U.S. Uh, camps were, uh, the OPs were, where obviously the East Germans thought, okay, uh, you know, if we can get across over there, the Americans will protect us, and that's exactly what happened a few times. Um, so, you know, basically, yeah, we we were not able to actively uh, participate or assist until they were across into uh, West Germany. Right, right. And presumably you had standing orders as to what to do if the border was crossed by the Soviet army. Yes, of course. I mean, those were standing orders. Uh, We had uh, uh, reporting procedures uh, that we, we... continuously or constantly, uh, you know, practiced uh, even with uh, uh, just just to keep the people on their toes uh, to make sure that the procedures were, were being followed. But it never came down to that, obviously. Uh, so that was that was a good thing. And, and 
I mean, what just in a quick summary, what were those orders just to try and hold them up as long as possible and, and report what you're seeing? Well, we had we had um, standing orders. Obviously, if there was a a violation of the border, so let's say there was a, and most of the time those happen with uh, with helicopters. So if we saw that there was a Soviet uh, Mi twenty four, and a lot of times it's difficult to to follow along the trace and those big you know flying tanks, especially, and sometimes they would accidentally you know violate the border. So we had procedures, uh, but obviously if we were talking about a, a major a major attack, uh, we would have been informed probably uh, ahead of time anyway through other agencies if something like that was taking place. And one of one of those agencies, obviously, being USMLM, because uh, USMLM had the capabilities or the missions had the capabilities of actually seeing what was happening on the other side on the ground. And in many cases were used to determine from uh, higher headquarters, hey, what is actually taking place? We know this is huge use exercises. Are they using this exercise as a cover? Uh, to to prepare uh, an invasion, uh, so obviously those are the kind of things we re- relied upon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've often heard it that the military liaison unit sort of kept the Cold War cool. Yes. Um, by being the eyes and ears, and effectively preventing any form of uh, surprise attack. Exactly. Really. Yeah. Okay, so so you're you're recruited into USMLM. And you arrive in in Berlin. Had you been to Berlin before? No, I'd never been to Berlin before then. And I'd been in Germany quite a bit. Uh, that was my second tour, in fact. Uh, so I'd been in Germany from eighty two to eighty four. Uh, went back to the states and then came back to Germany in eighty six, uh, and uh, never left. So <laughs> here I am. But no, that was the first time I'd, I'd been to Berlin. Right. And what, what were your first impressions of West Berlin? Well, obviously, the whole back then, the whole uh, thing of getting to, to West Berlin was, was, was very exciting because you had to get uh, special travel orders, the uh, Berlin travel orders uh, to, to uh, travel along the corridor, which was uh, crossing at, uh, at the uh, checkpoint uh, Bravo by Helmstedt. And or Alpha, sorry, Alpha by Hempstead, and then driving along to uh, through uh, East Germany, and you can only stay on that autobahn, and you had to drive 100 kilometers an hour because then they would calculate how long it would take you to get to Checkpoint Bravo, which was then at uh, Berlin. Uh, so the whole thing, you know, was a was a preparation getting from West Germany to to uh, West Berlin. And obviously, then I had people who were waiting for me when I got to uh, West Berlin. So a point of contact uh, in the first few days was was pretty, you know, the, the typical staying in a hotel, a military hotel, uh, guest house, and then uh, getting settled into the unit, all the paperwork done, uh, the Soviet passes, and then uh, started with the initial training. So they they really started quickly in getting the new folks trained. What was that initial training? Well, we all went to uh, Ashford uh, in Kent. Uh, that was the former uh, UK military uh, intelligence uh, school. Uh, and they had a special training course for uh, liaison mission personnel. So it was a, you had from the British and the US. Uh, I can't remember if the French also attended. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people 
who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Uh, I'm not really sure anymore, but uh, it was for um, the British and the Americans uh, and uh, not only a mission, but it was also prepara- uh, a preparatory training for uh, officers going into the uh, foreign um, uh, area liaison. So those who are working at the embassy uh, in, in Warsaw Pact countries and things like that. So it was it was dedicated to those kind of folks, mostly for the mission, because it was also a, a ground training. So you all you had a lot of vehicle ID training in the classroom, uh, and then you also had uh, some kind of practice uh, field exercises uh, to kind of get you used to being on the road in the woods in East Germany. And what what were those field exercises like? Presumably they were on like Salisbury Plain or somewhere like that. Yeah, they had uh, uh, the vehicles. So, uh, in fact, there were uh, some some G wagons uh, in uh, in Kent, and then we would actually, you know, with targets, uh, practicing how you would approach a target, uh, uh, how you would collect the information. It was it was very generic because obviously, you know, it wasn't uh, each each mission had their own equipment uh, and perhaps uh, their own way of doing things. Especially look at the the, uh, the UK mission. They had three mentors because they were the first mission to sign the agreement with the Soviets after World War II. Uh, and they had uh, almost twice as many uh, passes as then the Americans and the French. The Soviets uh, got smart and they said, oh, oh, I think we made a mistake with the British. Let's cut down the numbers before we make an agreement with the, uh, with the U.S. and the French. So the British toured with, uh, with three uh persons in the vehicle, whereas the Americans and the French only the two. So there was some, some differences that then, you know, we had to adjust uh, specifically uh, when we went out on tours. Did the training include language training for you? Uh, the, we were, the NCOs, most of the NCOs who were, who were uh, recruited were German speakers. So uh, some uh, to a more extensive level than others, but you got then uh, continuous training, also in Berlin language training. All of the officers, the, the afforded, um, uh, foreign area officers, the FAOs, they were Russian speakers. Some also spoke German and some other languages. Uh, but so that was sort of the, uh, the setting. The NCOs were responsible for German language and the officers were responsible for the uh, Russian language. And obviously, we also, the NCOs got some, some generic, let's say basic Russian language training. So at least we could uh, transliterate the Cyrillic alphabet. Uh, some typical greeting, uh, um, uh, you know, terminology uh, that we we could talk maybe with some Soviet uh, soldiers, uh, but the, the basically the split was okay. NCOs, you deal with the with the East German uh, population, and the officers deal with the Soviets. Right. So, being a two man crew, there was one NCO and one officer. Exactly. Did you both drive or was it normally the NCO? No, it was, was the driving? NCO. Sometimes, sometimes the, in fact, I wouldn't, 
I really didn't want to let the officers drive. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> sometimes, if if you were really really tired, they they might have said, hey, you know, can, can you know we'll take over for a bit, because you know we would put uh, easily in one tour, which which lasted from one to three days, easily two two and a half thousand kilometers on the road. So it was uh, sometimes, and then you didn't get any sleep or very very little sleep. But no, the NCO was usually, that was the responsibility. The responsibility was NCO was responsible for the vehicle operation security of the team and obviously also uh, vehicle identification, but that was also part of the officers. So we shared that responsibility, but the main responsibility for the NCO uh, was uh, operating the vehicle, so driving and security. So I had to say the final say on security matters. So that that's in terms of stay, go, or exactly. So if if we went into an area and and conducting our normal uh, approach tactics, and uh, and if I thought something didn't feel right, uh, I would say, look, no, uh, this this is not good. Let's let's get out of here. And yeah. I would say ninety nine percent of times the officer who listens. We had some, you know, some some of those uh, who wanted to to uh, gain the fame uh, and at all costs. But uh, that was usually uh, the split. And they, they did respect the NCOs on those uh, security uh, issues. And I, and I presume after the Nicholson incident, then there was an increased wariness of trigger-happy Soviet soldiers, or perhaps not from the officers by the sound of what you just described. Uh, after the Nicholson incident, and that's why they uh, they they sort of uh, changed a bit their whole process at the USMLM. Uh, the officers came from all, all sorts of backgrounds, the foreign area officers. So we had infantry officers, we had engineer officers, we had armor officers, we had quartermaster officers. So you had a different, a very varying level of tactical experience on the officer side of the house. Uh, and after the, uh, and before the Nicholson incident, the NCOs were also, sort of out of, out of this generic pool. So you also had a different uh, level of, let's say, tactical awareness on, on behalf of the NCOs. So after the Nicholson incident, they changed. They said, no, we're going we're gonna to do something here that we didn't do before, and we're only going to uh, recruit uh, NCOs from special operations. So SF, reconnaissance, uh, rangers, uh, when I got there, I was the only reconnaissance uh, background. All the others were uh, special forces and one uh, from the Ranger Regiment. So they increased the level of, let's say, tactical proficiency from the side of the NCOs to kind of, and that's why, like I said, we had the last hand security. Uh, and, uh, and the officers, because the officers came from all different backgrounds. When I was there, we also had some some uh, uh, special forces officers, uh, but very few. Where presumably you well you not presumably you you had training on evasional driving, yes, yes, um, yes. and uh, where was that? Was that in the UK or was that? No, you had to, we had two courses. One was conducted in uh, West Berlin on the uh, Tempelhof uh, Airport at the time. It was conducted by the uh, German um, police, uh, so their uh, operational police, the SAK. Uh, so they conducted that tactical uh, driver training uh, for us in Berlin, West Berlin. 
And then we also went to Weyingen, um near Stuttgart, and that was run by Mercedes. So actually a, a sort of anti-terrorist driving training. A lot of, I would say, you know, the typical, what we say in the military, HUA stuff, which you didn't really, you know, use on the road. It was nice to be able to, you know, those 360 pull on the, on the uh, emergency brake, uh, you know, Tom Cruise type of thing. But you, you really didn't, didn't use that uh, in, in, in East Germany. Uh, but it was nice to go through is also because it taught you uh, how the vehicle reacts and, and uh, when you when you do this and when you do that. So it, it was good training. It was good to understand how a vehicle reacts, how to get out of an overturned vehicle and, and those kinds of things. Uh, so we took that. We did the training. It was fun. It was always fun driving someone else's, you know, uh, thousand mark that, that, you know, those days, a hundred thousand mark Mercedes uh and and do whatever you want with it so it was uh it was uh it was fun i can imagine and and what was that the same vehicle you were using in east germany no no those were mostly sedans that we did the training on uh so uh obviously we drove with the uh with the g-wagon the Geländewagen. uh they came they came in the in the early 80s uh before then every mission sort of had their own uh vehicle and then um it was standardized across the, the missions in the early 80s, went to the Mercedes G-Wagon. They were built for us specially in, uh, in, in Stuttgart for Mercedes. And then we had uh, modifications that were done on the, on the G-Wagons for us. Uh, so by the time they got to us in West Berlin, they were, I think, like 120,000 uh, D-Marks at the time, which was very expensive, um, each, each Mercedes G-Wagon, so they had special off-road packages. Uh, um, they had two fuel tanks. They had an extra uh, built-in roll bar into the chassis uh, during, the, during the construction in Stuttgart. They had a hatch. They had a special 24-volt system uh, with all our, what we used to call the, uh, the 007 uh, switches. Uh, so all those things, all those modifications. And then we had uh, in West Berlin was an actual team from Mercedes uh, in the military motor pool that only took care of our uh, cars. Uh, um, so um, it was a, a very good, a very good uh, group that made sure that those vehicles, and I tell you, they were really uh, amazing, those vehicles. And tell me more about the 007 mods. <laughs> well, it was 20 volt. A 24 volt system because obviously for all our uh, camera equipment, video equipment, so we had special plugs they could plug in. But then we had this this panel uh, with all these switches. Now I can't really remember every one. I think it was like seven or eight switches uh, that you could uh, once you crossed over into uh, East Germany. You know we would then start hitting those switches so you would turn off your brake light so they wouldn't see if when you when you brake uh, we would turn off the horn so not so you wouldn't by accident. Uh, hit the horn when you're in, in the woods somewhere. Uh, we also had uh, where you could turn off uh, completely uh, all the lights, and then we'd go to uh, night vision devices. We had RI, uh, IR light switch that then we could hit. Um, we also had uh, what was called the Trabant switch, so we could uh, dim the the headlights to make them look from far away as if it was a, a trabi. Uh, and then we also had one was a motorcycle light that we could... Um, uh, switch off half the lights of the vehicle. So from far away, someone would think it's, it's just a motorcycle. 
so those are the kind of things that, uh, and they came in handy. Uh, they came in very handy tactically um, in, in many occasions. Uh, but yeah, it was dubbed the, the 007 uh, switches. Brilliant. Brilliant. We didn't have any machine guns that would pop out and no oil spills, but... <laughs> Oh, I'm di- I'm disappointed, Tom, at that. But that, that's the sort of detail our listeners like on Cold War conversations. Yeah. So I appreciate <laughs> no you uh, appreciate you sharing those. And as far as recording what you were seeing, what 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 did you have for that? You mentioned video cameras. Uh, presumably, you had SLRs. Yeah, we had some pretty uh, high speed equipment. So the officers were mostly responsible for uh, the photography. And, and the video filming. We had also uh, mounted on the uh, on the roll bar a, a, a mount where they could mount the, the video camera, and and we were, you know, we would get this stuff from from companies that were developing well ahead of time, you know, what was on the market. So we had video cameras that had stabilizers in them. So while we were driving, you know, up and down, bouncing on the tank trails, you know, that video would be filming uh, steady. Uh, we also had uh, binoculars that were made for us. Uh, I can't remember, I think they were Japanese. I can't remember which, which brand, but they were stabilized binoculars. Uh, we had then obviously Nikon 35mm uh, cameras, uh, the standard with, with all kinds of different lenses. The NCO also had one issued, and we would keep it in you know, the side of our door. So we would you know take shots, you know, we'd save opportunity. So if the officer was taking pictures, I could also you know, pull up the camera at the same time and take pictures, I would do that. But but the officer was responsible for the actual operation of the uh, cameras and the video equipment. Right. Seems to be a waste of your art school training there, Tom. <laughs> so the British had uh, a base in Potsdam in, in East Germany. Were you completely based in West Berlin? No, no, okay, all the you have to remember, with the missions, we all had our our operational headquarters were all in West Berlin. So the British, the, the Americans, and the and the French. And then we had our representational headquarters were in Potsdam. So the British had their villa in Potsdam, the French as well, and, and the U.S. Uh, mission was also uh, in, in Potsdam. So those were the representational. Uh, after the war and after the agreement, the Soviets provided each of the um, missions with a uh, wonderful location, villa, uh, and they provided all the uh, East German help uh, in, in the villa, which were obviously all working for uh, the, the, the police or the Stasi. We knew that. Uh, you know, that's, that was no problem. Uh, but uh, our operational headquarters was in West Berlin. So the representation, we didn't do any planning there. We didn't talk any uh, mission stuff there because we knew that they were bugged. Uh, but they were just the, the representational uh, place where we would hold the parties and we would, uh, uh, you know, stop in. We'd have, um, uh, if we were, in, let's say, in a local tour around Potsdam, we could stop in, get something to eat. We, we'd sleep there maybe at night. Uh, but uh, we would always stop in at the, at the, at the villa before we went out uh, on, uh, on, started on the missions just to sort of check in because we always had a... Um, either a staff duty officer, staff duty NCO that pulled duty there and you could take your family and kids as well. So it's really nice because you had uh, help, uh, you had people that were cooking for you and cleaning for you. Uh, so we would always stop in and say, Hey, we're here or now we're going to be checking out. So they knew, okay, everything's fine. 
and usually we did that also on the way back before we head to, uh, to West Berlin. But the operational headquarters was in West Berlin, and perhaps a, a, a small uh, anecdote there, the U.S. Um, operational headquarters uh, was across the street from the U.S. PX facility, uh, and it was the former headquarters of General Feldmarschall Keitel. So uh, during World War II, one of uh, Hitler's uh, staff generals, that was his headquarters. He lived right across the street from it. His private residence was right across the street, a, a, a huge villa. And there were tunnels that went from the his operational headquarters under the street to his villa. And the, the mission or this villa was built by uh, Albert Speer, so also one of the famous uh, architects who spent some time in the Spandau prison. Um, so it had, had some, some really history. And now, uh, if you'd like to know what it is, it is a uh, kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> I love Berlin. There's just so much history there. And, um, you know, you can easily walk past and not, not know exactly, the yeah. story of some of these right. buildings. That That's really interesting. Um how did you get on with the other military liaison missions? Did you work with them quite closely? Well, we didn't see each other that much uh, because the um, we had East Germany divided into three sectors, actually four. There was an A, B, and C, and then a local around uh, Potsdam and Berlin. Uh, we didn't target Berlin. Uh, others did that, East Berlin, but around Berlin, outside, yes, and outside Potsdam because there had a lot of military units. So that's why it was a local area, and then you had an A, B, and C, and then we rotated. So if we were in A, and the, the, the UK folks were in uh, were in B, and the French in, in C, uh, and then maybe somebody's in local, but local always went running around to everybody. So the main was A, B, and C, and I can't remember now how many days it went. So maybe let's say let's give it a, a two week period. So after that two week period, we then rotate. We would move to B. Uh, UK folks moved to, to uh, C and the French to A. So you always, you always had complete coverage of East Germany. And obviously then we shared, so the Intel folks shared the information, the, the uh, gathered information. They always had these, these meetings uh, in, in West Berlin and to share the information. Uh, so, but we had a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, functions in West Berlin and also uh, in, in Potsdam, where we would come together with families uh, and um, so the mission, the tribe mission folks would always get together in some form or another, whether it was a Christmas party, whether it was the Queen's birthday, whether it was the Fourth of July, uh, you know, the French Independence Day, those kind of things always took place. Uh, and it was a lot of, a lot of uh, beer drinking, of course, and uh, the usual stuff. Because I've seen photos of some of the parties where the Soviets are invited yes. along as well. Were yes. they invited to those sort of gatherings in, too? In Potsdam, yes. So when we had the official functions in Potsdam, example, the 4th of July, they would come. Uh, so not only other missions, but all uh, the, the, the Soviets and, uh, you know, get drunk and take uh, everything that they could take with them uh, when they left. Um, and so those were the kind of, we also had then, Parties for them where only the mission folks were, so no families. And everything you have to understand, everything we did was part of the human intelligence collection. So even these these functions, we were always uh, looking at gathering information uh, from the Soviets. So we had example in the uh, in the U.S. in Potsdam, 
we ran what was called a casino night. Um, so I could probably write a book just on the casino nights. <laughs> but but uh, uh, we're obviously the NCOs. We were drivers. Uh, so we picked everybody up, not only the U.S., but also the Soviets. And then we would be uh, the bartenders. And the officers were basically uh, running this, this casino night with the uh, Soviet officers, getting them drunk, uh, showing them strange adult movies on TV and things like that. And uh, getting to the point where they get information. Uh, and some of the, it was it was funny because the American officers would actually you know get briefed on what, what the requirements were. And then they would go through training on how they could drink with the Soviets and, and not get drunk. So because the Soviets could obviously drink uh, extremely, extremely heavily. Uh, I remember one, one casino night where I think there was nothing left to drink anymore in the U.S. Potsdam Villa. They drank wow. everything. Uh, and it was pretty embarrassing. I mean, I always, I always had respect for the Soviet officers, so these colonels and, and generals or lieutenant colonels and majors when they were in uniform. They had some sense of respect. But once they started getting drunk, everything just went downhill. <laughs> you know, they started taking their clothes off, and uh, sometimes fist fights would break out among themselves, and they would fall over each other. And so then you would lose complete respect <laughs> for, for any of these, these officers. And and what sort of information were you were you getting out of them? Well, I mean, you know, the the uh, the officers are usually responsible for doing that. But I'll give an example. I was bartending at one of these functions, and obviously they knew everything about us. So there was no, you know, all these guys from the Soviet side were were KGB, GRU, and whatever else. You know, when I was stationed in East Germany, Putin was was the KGB chef in, in Dresden. So, you know, they knew everything about us. So they'd come up to you and they'd start, you know, because they were doing the same thing. They were trying to get, collect information. So the same thing we were doing, they were trying to do at these parties. And they'd come up to me and start talking and say, oh, your name, uh, uh, Fabia, that's an Italian name. And, and we had a, a basically a, a rule, you know, you could t- disclose anything about yourself because they already knew everything about you. So if they asked you where you're from and if you were married, how many kids you had, you could tell them there's no problem because they already knew that. But if once they started asking you about someone else, then you would put a stop to it. Uh, so, you know, they, they would come up to me and they, oh, that's an Italian name. And, oh, I think that comes from the Apulia region of, of Italy. And, oh, you're from New York. And, yeah, I mean, they knew everything. Of, oh, you were, you were the border recon NCO in uh, in, uh, in West Germany before you came here. And, you know, so they knew everything about you already. What, what we did, they, they were doing as well, just trying to, to gather information. Uh, it, but I think the, the trickiest part was obviously in West Berlin because, you know, you didn't know in West Berlin, obviously that was like the, the biggest spiring uh, during the Cold War. So a lot of times, you know, when I was in a pub in West Berlin, and, and Germans would, you know, oh, you know, they loved Americans and they would start buying you beer. So you always have to be a little bit careful because in the back of my mind was, is this guy now working for the Stasi? So uh, I think that was more more of a, a challenge than with the Soviets, in fact. Can you take me through, I was going to say a normal mission, but I guess none of them are ever normal, but just take <laughs> me through you know, exiting West Berlin, yeah. you then visit the mission and then 
the mission house and then you 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 know you start your tour can you just take me through sure that? i mean that's why the the it was obviously a uh, preparational or preparatory part of the whole uh, mission getting ready for the mission the and that's why the ncos probably had three times more uh road time on in east germany than, than the officers because the officers had to do uh, the preparation. They also had to do the deep briefings, the intelligence uh, uh, debriefing afterwards. Uh, the NCOs, we were limited to that part, only in, in giving them the information in case they needed something. So we would be on the road more often uh, than the than the officers. Uh, but it was it was again probably I'd say uh, two to three days before we hit the road. Uh, you uh, went went through your targets with the tour officer. So you already knew which target uh, you were going to be uh, hitting. You got your information from the uh, intel folks. Uh, uh, what if there were any specific um, priorities they were looking at? But then you had the targets, which were units. Uh, so uh, in, in the area where you're going to be at, uh, what units, what uh, tank ranges, what uh, facilities, and those kind of things. So we we already had all that down, and then we prepared. We talked it over. Uh, and then I got the vehicle ready. We got our equipment ready. And then we knew when we were leaving and then we, we head out. Uh, so from the mission uh, operational villa or the mission uh, operational headquarters in, in uh, West Berlin to the Glenica Bridge, that was our uh, official crossing point uh, from West Berlin to Potsdam. And the Glenica Bridge, everybody I think knows about it. It's the, the famous Bridge of Spies. Divided into two sides. One side was controlled by the Soviets and for the uh, military liaison missions. So that's where the Soviets controlled uh, our access, entry, and, and uh, exit from Potsdam. And the other side was controlled by the East German border troops, and that was for the diplomatic corps. Okay, so uh, diplomat diplomatic folks that were going from uh, East Germany to West Germany and, and so on. So the Soviets controlled us, and we basically pull up on the West German side, the Polizei, that uh, monitored, uh, secured the bridge, and then we would pass them by and, and wave. And then we'd get to about the center of the bridge. There was a, a gate. Uh, and then the Soviet guard would come out of his shack, open up the door, let us through, and then we would hand them our passes. We had uh, accreditation, so it was basically an ID card, a Soviet ID card uh, with our names and our photographs and, and information. And we hand that, and he'd go into his uh, little shack and record uh, the information, also record the vehicle uh, plate, and then hand back to us, and then salute the typical military uh, stuff. And then we'd he'd open up the other side of the gate, and we'd be in in, uh, in East Germany. Uh, and what always amazed me about that particular um, whole aspect was when you drove up to the Glenica Bridge from West Germany. Everything was green and the buildings had color and even the air was different. But as soon as you crossed into East Germany and Potsdam, everything was now gray. There was very little green. Everything stunk of, of, of brown coal. Uh, it was like you hit a switch going from one world into the next world and it was only a couple of hundred meters. It was amazing. Um, but yeah, then we we drive to uh, the uh, villa because that's how it was our, our procedure. Stop in, uh, so the staff, duty officer, NCO say, "Hey, we're here and we're going to be heading out. We maybe get some you know some sandwiches from, from the kitchen, uh, maybe drink a coffee, and then we'd head out to our first target. And uh, and as I said, uh, depended on the the uh, priorities. 
usually two to three days uh, hitting all the targets. Uh, now, we had the option of extending the tour. Uh, if there was a lot of activity going on, we could then uh, say, okay, we're going to stay longer. Uh, the only problem that that created is we had no communications uh, with uh, West Germany. Uh, so that would obviously sometimes create some panic uh, in uh, the headquarters if we didn't come back when we we're supposed to come back. The only way we could communicate that to them if we were staying long was, was trying to find a East German phone booth that worked. Uh, and that was uh, like winning the lottery. Uh, so a lot of times you knock on people's doors in villages because in every town, maybe one or two people might have a phone. And we knew that those who had a phone would probably be informants for the for the Stasi. But, you know, we'd, we'd say, hey, look, can we use the phone and, and you know, hand them uh, some some cards of cigarettes and whatever. Uh, but, yeah, that's we, we could extend if there was some really you know good stuff going on that we thought it's worth staying. Uh, but usually from two to three days were, were, the, were the missions uh, tours. Right. And, and where, where did you stay overnight? How did you sleep and how, how did you cook food? Okay, well, I can tell you I'm, I'm, I turned uh, 59 on Monday and I have four herniated discs. So that should tell you uh, where we stayed. <laughs> uh, slept in the, in the vehicle. The officer had uh, uh, the option of, um, if they wanted to, sleeping outside of the vehicle uh, in a sleeping bag uh, on top of the vehicle so they could stretch out. Many didn't because you were always vulnerable. Even though we before we, we got some sleep, if we got any sleep, we obviously went into a wooded area uh, with um, uh, no lights on and night vision goggles and then drove for three to four or five kilometers, so made sure nobody's behind us, and then said, okay, this is an area where maybe we can get a couple hours of sleep. Um, so some of the officers might, you know, say, okay, I'll get out and sleep on, on the ground. But then you had, like I said, you're, you're vulnerable also to, uh, war hogs, uh, and those kind of things. So, uh, mostly we slept in the vehicle. The NCO always slept in the vehicle because we had to be ready to go at a moment's notice. So I got so good at, at pulling into an area with night vision goggles on, no lights on. And when the officer said, this is where we're going to stop, it would be all in one motion. I would be turning off the engine, pulling off the night vision goggles, and with the other hand, the seat would go back, and I'd be sleeping. Um, so because, you know, it could be maybe an, you know 30 minutes, it could be an hour, it could be two hours. Uh, and most of the time, usually we, we, we tried to combine it with an OP, so we would pull in somewhere where overlooking a, a railroad uh, line, because the Soviets transported everything on tracks back in those days. Uh, so you really didn't get that much sleep because anytime a train went by, you'd pop up to see is a kid on it, you know, and then, oh, nothing, okay, close your eyes again. But that's how we slept and, and cooking as we lived out of the vehicle. That was our, our home, our you know, kitchen, bedroom, bathroom. Um, so we, we cooked in the vehicle. We had these small uh, stoves that we would then cook uh, that was a privilege. Obviously, most time I, I think I ate cold uh, between my legs. Uh, but yeah, we we did. Uh, if we had some time, we would also cook, make you know, make our, uh, our our chow a little bit warmer to enjoy. Sounds very glamorous, Tom. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> 
but we did it for God and country. So <laughs> yeah, well, we're we're very grateful for that, Tom. We're very grateful for that. Honestly, we are. Um, so the 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 targets you were looking at. I mean, were, were you given like satellite photos or anything like that, or you you were just working from a map? No, we had we had maps. It was these these really nice uh, map books that we had uh, from the, from the areas. And that's how, you know, it was before the days of, uh, of GPS and, uh, uh, Tom, Tom and <laughs> Google maps. So it was old school, uh, with these, uh, map books, uh, which had the targets marked. There was no, no sensitive information in them. So if, if the Soviets uh, pulled us out and beat us up and then got them, there was no, no sensitive information. Just, it was just a map book with, you know, the area where we were going to was marked on it, and that was it. Um, so uh, we only had a, a, a um, basically a trip counter in the vehicle where uh, basically if the officer was navigating, said, okay, Tom, look, in about a 1,000 meters, we're going to have to take the trail to the left, and I would hit that, that, uh, that trip uh, button, and then I could see, okay, coming up to 1,000 meters, it's, it's going to be here somewhere. Uh, that's... That was all we had to to navigate. But again, the targets were always usually the same uh, because uh, those were installations, training areas. So we were pretty familiar with with them uh, and could could find them after a couple of uh, you know months without maps. Uh, in fact, these were places like airfields, training areas. Okay, we had as the UK also did. We had a ground team, an air team. Uh, and the naval team. Uh, so the ground guys, the the army guys, we were responsible for all the, the ground uh, objectives, so targets, so uh, military training areas, uh, ranges, unit installations, uh, and the air teams are responsible. And they had it. In fact, they had it uh, rougher than we did. Let's put it uh, to, to, to you know put it uh, in that way, because they had targets that were stationary. So, you know, there were airfields, there were uh, radar installation sites. So they were sitting at the, at the end of an airfield waiting for activity, maybe for two days. They were easy targets to be, to be uh, identified. And that's why a lot of the air teams always got uh, detained, uh, whereas we were always on the move. Um, so, you know, if we went to a tank range um, and there was activity on the tank range, we'd be driving. And, and when I tell people this, they're like, you know, and when I tell it to myself, I'm thinking to myself, how did I actually survive and do this kind of crazy stuff? Because if we were observing a T-64 T um, uh, tank range uh, firing exercise, the best place to be would be downrange. Because from downrange, we could we could see how they, they were moving, how they were firing. Uh, and, you know, when I think about it today, I'm thinking, you know, here I am, I'm a moving target for that T-64. Um but we were on the move, <laughs> so at least we weren't stationary. Uh, but those are the kind of the, the kind of things that that uh, we were doing. Were you like trying to find unexploded ordnance and stuff like that? No, no, we were not responsible for. In fact, we we, we were given clear orders not to uh, bring anything back. If we came across something munitions, we could photograph it. So you know, we'd uh, me take measurements, uh, put a cigarette package next to it, so we have. Uh, you know, uh, form to, to, to measure it, take pictures, but we wouldn't take ordnance back. Uh, I know in in the uh, mid-80s, the U.S., it did happen 
where the T-80 uh, the first time was seen with uh, reactive armor. And in fact, it was my predecessor. Uh, he jumped up on the, the, the tank. It was on a, I think it was on a, uh, um, a rail uh, movement uh, stationary. So he jumped up on top with tools and actually dismounted one of the, the, uh, uh, the bricks from the T-80 uh, uh, tank. And they brought it back to uh, West Berlin. Now, that was, again, that was such a big problem because the mission chief, who was a colonel, Vietnam uh, War veteran, he chewed them out from top to bottom. In fact, I think he probably wanted to, to, to get rid of them. Uh, but the intelligence community was so impressed that they ended up having to give them medals. <laughs> uh, but we were clearly told, do not ever do anything like that again. Uh, and we had a saying, and it was called risk versus gain after the uh, Nicholson incident. Uh, it was nothing worth risking your life for, okay? Uh, if, you know, if, if, if it was so dangerous that, that you would uh, get shot at, uh, then leave it uh, for another day. So that's why security was a big factor. Uh, and like I said, the NCOs, we had the last say on security. Right. So, so did you bring anything back? Because I know the British went through rubbish dumps and things like that. Yes, that was a different. That was a different uh, activity. In fact, that was probably one of the biggest uh, collection uh, coups during the time that we were in East Germany, because uh, the Soviets had this this mentality that once I throw it away, it's destroyed. So not like 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 we do, where things shredded, burned. Uh, no, they they had you know it's it's in the it's in the uh, Dumpster, it's it's gone, and in East Germany, you didn't have basically your 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 garbage dumps were just big holes in the ground, some bigger, some some smaller in the middle of a woods, maybe surrounded by fence, maybe no fence, and they would dump the trash in there, and then every couple of days they would set it on fire and, and let it burn. Uh, so we would do the same and all, all missions did the same. And it was a very, very sensitive activity during the mission days. It was very, very, uh, top secret, uh, collecting, going through, uh, the garbage dumps at night. And that's another reason why we didn't get much sleep, uh, because that was also a very secure or very, uh, activity that we had to make sure no one's following us. We would drive, you know, maybe 20, 30 kilometers out of our way to get to that, to that dump, uh, in the middle of the night, uh, with night vision goggles, uh, I would be pulling security throughout through the hatch. The officer would go into the uh, trash dump with a burlap sack, a small red uh, lens flashlight, and, and night vision goggles. And basically, anything that, that looked Cyrillic, you just stuff it in that bag. So you didn't go through and, and determine anything there. You had folks back in Wisconsin do that. But, but we anything that looked Cyrillic, you would just stuff it in the bag. We had, you know, special trunks that we could lock in the in the G wagon, and then once we got back to uh, Berlin, West Berlin, we'd uh, give it to the intel folks who would then uh, analyze it all. And you wouldn't be you'd be amazed everything they threw away. So you had, you know, the strength of their units, the uh, morale issues. You would have commanders' names, soldiers' names, the everything that you can imagine. That's why we would also target the military. Hospital, the Soviet military hospital in Baylitz, uh, because they would throw all the military records away as well. Uh, so you can get a lot of information 
also, uh, along with information, medical records, also body parts. But that was just, you know, uh, <laughs> it's part of the game. So they would throw even, you know, the surgery room uh, waste into those into those dumps. So it was a nasty. That was a really nasty part of the uh, of the job. But it was uh, it was the, the part that really got a lot of information for the intel folks. But you would have been sitting in the car, and the officer would have been. Uh, yes, yes, I'd be pulling this stuff because out because security was paramount. We didn't want to to compromise that mission. So if we had clear clear uh, uh, strategy, uh, if. I saw someone coming, whether it was on foot or vehicle, I would leave and we would have a link up point. Uh, and that was one of the most terrible things because you'd never want to leave someone behind. And luckily it never happened, but uh, that was always, so you, you really were on your toes because, uh, um, and we also had a, a predetermined time. So if the officer went out of the car and said, he said, okay, I'm going to be there an hour. And if he was going to take longer, he would have to come back and let you know, because if after that hour he wasn't there, I was going to be taking it off. So um, that was a very, a very sensitive uh, activity. The adrenaline was always pumping during that hour, two hours out in the woods at the trash dump. I can imagine. I can imagine. Uh, I, I presume you had some incidents where the soviets were trying to block you in or the stasi was trying to uh, hinder you can you describe any of those sorry folks we're gonna have to leave it there as i had a lot of audio recorded so if you want to hear more of tom's story it'll be in episode 185 in two weeks time now you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Mark Labance, Frederick Esposito, Darren Hughes, Jim Black, Ryan Vlaming, Stephen Kavalic, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.